Good morning and welcome to Some Zero Headlines. This is Avery Pagan. Today's podcast features Ken Londoner, the CEO of Biosig Technologies. Ken started his career on the buy side as an analyst at J&W Seligman and later launched his own fund in the 90s, which managed almost a billion dollars at its peak. Eventually, his knowledge of the medtech industry brought him to the corporate side of the business, founding Biosig in 2009, whose core product is Pure EP, a patented signal processing technology used in cardiac ablation therapy and other electrophysiology treatments. The Mayo Clinic, who sealed a 10-year partnership with Biosig back in 2017, is among Pure EP's earliest investors. And Ken sees opportunity far beyond the med tech space for applications of their software in defense tech, autonomous vehicles, and wireless communications, to name a few. We at SumZero are excited to bring you our very first corporate access event with this episode, offering a sneak peek at Biosig straight from the source. Look out for more corporate collaborations as we continue to diversify the SumZero network and bring you investment ideas off the beaten path. Without further ado, please welcome Ken to the show. Welcome, everyone, uh, here uh, with the SumZero podcast. I've got Ken Londoner, CEO of Biosig um, Technologies, um, here with us today uh, to talk about um, a couple of very interesting topics. Um, he runs a firm that um, basically has created a product to cater to arrhythmia. Um, and so any of you who are interested in bioelectronics, but also um, AI implications, uh, I think this will be a really interesting discussion. Um, Ken, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Great Thank to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, can you having just us. tell us a quick, um, you know, I know you've got a hedge fund background, but also you're sort of a serial entrepreneur. If you can just give us a quick, um, you know, bio on yourself. Uh, we can start with that. Sure. Thank you. Um, I started my career as a research analyst um, in Boston first and then moved down to New York and worked for a a uh, really venerable old firm called J&W Seligman, uh, which was founded in 1864. It was the second oldest money management firm in the country. Um, great history there. They uh, brought General Motors public in 1910, built the Golden Gate Bridge and a lot of railroads. So it was a, an amazing experience to be a young individual in that organization. And uh, the hallmark of that firm was uh, really deep due diligence. A lot of uh, research field work. Um, building your own financial models and, and really learning companies uh, you know, as deeply as you can understand them. So that was great training. And then at a very young age, they uh, allowed me to manage money. Uh, I think at the age of 24, they gave me a $650 million mutual fund. I remember calling my mother saying, Mom, guess what? Uh, I'm now managing $650 million. And she was like, what are you talking about? So that was an amazing, it was a good time too because the 90s, Everything was booming. Uh, You know, cell phones were in their infancy. Uh, The PC was, you know, just getting its legs. Uh, Fiber optic cable was just, you know, in its early stages. Satellite television, um, big box retailing like Home Depot and Costco. All these things were in their infancy, so it was easy to make money. So, so when did you make the transition to, um, you know, entrepreneurship specifically to, to biotech and medical devices? Well, um, I studied entrepreneurship at NYU. I got an MBA there in 94, but, you know, I was just becoming jealous of all the folks that we were investing in, you know, who were basically building businesses from very early stage. 
uh, Costco comes to mind. I, I remember being in their third store when they opened it. It was in New Jersey, I believe. Um, and, you know, look at Costco today. Um, so I was becoming jealous that they were having all the fun and I was sitting on the uh, investor side and, you know, you're like a spectator in the stands as opposed to on the field. So I was building up a, um, a latent interest to wanting to be on the field. It just looked more uh, appealing to me. And then 9-11 came and that was sort of my moment to be able to make this shift uh, jump over the fence to the other side. And uh, it's, been a, it's been fun. And what was your, um, I'm just curious, what were some of your early successes in, in uh, biotech specifically? Well, I mean, we, uh, it's a good question. I remember when Amgen came into Seligman's office in the uh, early 90s, they didn't even have approval for any of their drugs. I think the stock had a market cap of a couple hundred million dollars. And today, I don't know what Amgen is, like three, four hundred billion. So uh, biotech was just in its infancy back in the late 80s. There were uh, a bunch of small little companies. None of us understood what they were doing. So yeah. uh, I, I think that's, that's a common sentiment amongst a lot of traditional value investors who, you know, I don't know if it's, if, if it's just a not understanding some of the technical elements or just being um, intimidated by the field. But, um, you know, hopefully today we can get... get uh, um, Explain some of the, the technical elements of sure. what you guys do. Um, just kind of transitioning a little bit to biotech specifically, um, you guys sell a product that's um, called the, the Pure P mm -hmm. uh, system. Um, can you just describe what it does at, at a high level? Um, and also, if you can just explain the, the market that you're trying to address, I think that'd be a good starting point. Sure. So uh, people who have an abnormal heart rhythm that beats too fast, uh, they call that arrhythmia. Um, atrial fibrillation are two terms that are interchangeable. And uh, it's a very dangerous condition. And uh, people say, well, why does this happen? Um, there's a lot of answers. You know, uh, medical ailments are, are complicated. Every single one is complicated. But with the heart, I mean, the heart's an essential organ, has to function properly. And um, the, two, uh, the two conditions that, that come on uh, uh, for disease are uh, what we call the electrical system and the plumbing system. So when your arteries get blocked and blood flow can't go uh, to and from the heart, you know, they call that a heart attack. And they have tools and technologies that can open up the vessels called stents. Um, and uh, that industry is quite large. Um, we're on the electrical side of, of the uh, heart in the sense that when the heart beats, there's a, uh, the heart fires an electrical impulse. Uh, the heart tissue conducts electricity. It's really remarkable. And there are a bunch of reasons why, um, you know, a heart will slip into a fast heart rhythm. Uh, some of it's genetic. It runs in families. Some of it is lifestyle-induced. Everything you would think of from obesity to uh, poor lifestyle choices, uh, sleep apnea, um, alcoholism, things of that nature can induce uh, arrhythmia. And they say one out of four people over the age of 40 has the condition. And so when you, when you have an arrhythmia, uh, you may feel it. You feel uh, you know, palpitations in your chest. You may feel lightheaded, dizzy. You may faint. Um, and it's something you have to take care of right away. 
So about 30 years ago, 1989, there was a group in Bordeaux, France, and I, I've never asked them how did they figure this out, but they discovered that if they deliver electrical um, impulses uh, to the heart tissue at the site where these uh, irregular heartbeats are emanating, they can put the heart back into normal rhythm. And how they do that is they use a wire and they take the wire, they call that a catheter, and they thread it through your femoral artery and your groin. They snake it right up into the top two chambers of your heart called the atrium. And they are burning heart tissue with radio frequency energy. So if you think about you know, uh, the tip of a match uh, burning your palm or burning you know, the top of your hand, you get a little um, injury, a little lesion, a little burn. Uh, so that's what they're doing inside the heart. And they're trying to find the exact right spot to put the heart back into normal rhythm. And where they do this is in the hospitals, right? You can't do this anywhere but a hospital setting. And in the operating room, or they call that the lab, uh, there's a lot of medical equipment that all operate simultaneously. So you have everything from x-ray machines to MRIs to mapping systems, and there's a whole long list of technologies. And the way I describe it to people who, who are not experts is if you had eight or nine um, radio stations broadcasting on the same frequency band, like 95.9, and everybody was on that frequency band, you wouldn't hear uh, the broadcast because everybody's stepping over one another. So in the operating room, all the medical equipment uh, that they use to do the surgery operates in the same frequency band, and it causes distortion. We essentially have a uh, proprietary hardware software platform that eliminates the interference that comes from the other machines that are operating simultaneously to help treat the patient. And by eliminating the distortion in the signals that come from inside the heart, uh, the physicians get a much clearer picture. What, what are they relying on to get that information today? So just to take a little, a half step backwards, um, so when somebody discovers they have it, they go to their cardiologist, um, and the cardiologist will take an EKG, you know what that sure, is, right? Yeah. And that reads the electrical activity of the heart from the surface of the body. Um, and they put stickies all over your body, on your arms and your legs and your chest. And uh, the waveforms uh, that they get on the reading indicate um, you know, where the abnormality is. But it's not as reliable, uh, that information, as uh, the, the catheter that sits inside your heart. Think of it as an antenna inside the source that's a much more reliable uh, reading. It's a more accurate, scientifically uh, um, you know, precise reading. Uh, so um, going back, when somebody has this condition, uh, I think it's about 95% of the folks who have this uh, will uh, use drug therapy as their first line of uh, treatment. Now the thing about the drugs are, think about like allergies, right, or asthma. Um, if you have allergies, you'll take Claritin or some other medication like that and it will uh, mask the symptoms but you still have the underlying condition right it doesn't cure right. allergies it just allows you to have a better quality of life the the challenge in my opinion with the um, drugs uh, that treat the rapid heart rhythms is the arrhythmia is a progressive disease so if you don't cure it it advances and it gets worse kind of like cancer 
So uh, the surgical procedure um, is really the best chance to cure the disease. And the way they cure it is they have to find the right locations inside the heart and deliver the right amount of therapy. It's very difficult. Um, and if they get it right, you are cured. It doesn't come back. And so that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of uh, medical advances. The challenge and the reason we started this company is that um, the success rates for the surgery are low. What are they? It really depends on what stage of the disease they caught it. If they catch it early and you go to one of the top medical centers in uh, any major uh, market uh, and you get the top professional, the top surgeon, you know, the success rate early stage can be up to 85, 90%. Um, but that's, that's not very often. You know, a lot of times you didn't know you had the disease and it's mid-stage. And the mid-stage success rates, because the disease gets more complicated as it advances, like cancer, um, uh, the success rates decline to 50% or lower. And if it's late stage, you can be in the 20s. So uh, there's a whole bunch of innovators. Is it sort of like cancer where there are just multiple regions of the heart that are not? It's, it's, really, it's really complicated, I have to say. Um, first of all, the, the, the industry doesn't know why this happens. They don't really understand the biophysical uh, origins of this disease. I mean, we know it's genetic and we know it's lifestyle-based, but to actually understand why it starts, uh, that hasn't really been properly vetted out yet, at least to my, to my opinion. Um, and then, you know, this, uh, this procedure's been around uh, for about 30 years uh, in terms of uh, what they do. And the uh, medical equipment has gotten way more sophisticated over time. But still, you have these very low outcomes. So only 4% of those that have the rapid heart rhythm elect to have the surgical procedure. Uh, and it's what a cure. What equate to in terms of just raw numbers? Numbers? You know, the numbers vary, but, um, you know, there's a lot of statistics out there. Roughly 6 million people in the United States have rapid heart rhythms. In outside the U.S., it's about 33 million. And that number grows 10 plus percent a year because of demographics. The aging process is, uh, is, is the driver, which is um, secular. And um, so it's the, I believe it's the fourth leading disease by numbers, you know, incidence. And what is it about the, um, the tech itself that allows you to generate this higher resolution mm -hmm. you know, signal? Yeah, that's a great question. So our chief technology officer uh, who uh, co-founded the company with me uh, back in uh, February 2009, uh, he was a... Uh, assistant professor of computer science and electrical engineering at UCLA, uh, back when the internet was just an infant. And uh, he was um, a lab partner with a gentleman by the name of Henry Simirelli. And Henry was the founder of Broadcom. Broadcom back in the late 80s, early 90s, made some of the essential uh, components that created the internet. So they were encouraged, this team at UCLA was encouraged to bring their know-how into the field of atrial fibrillation because the noise issue and signal processing was the unmet technical challenge, which we now have uh, solved and patented. We, last year, we received 26 patents. What would you say is the most proprietary 
component of the overall system. There's obviously the yeah. hardware, there's the software, there's the junction box. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so we, we use a very good patent law firm in Washington, D.C. by the name of Stern Kessler. And Stern Kessler arguably is the top patent law firm in signal processing, which is an incredible field. And um, uh, basically, they were able to get us uh, a lot of patents last year, and we had no... Um, prior art rejections in the patent process. What that means is that there's nobody that came before us that a patent examiner at the U.S. Patent Office would say we're sort of copying or we're doing something similar to something that's already been done. So the way we take noise out of signal is unique and uh, it's going to be quite valuable to our shareholders because uh, our patent attorneys have told us that uh, because it's unique, uh, we may be able to ultimately apply it to uh, a lot of other industrial sectors like, uh, you know, wireless communications, autonomous driving, um, uh, defense electronics. And it's really, again, taking uh, noise uh, out of the signal. So just for an example, um, you know, Tesla, who has the automated, uh, you know, uh, you know, hands-free driving, you don't have to do anything, the car does it. Um, one of the challenges for these sensors and the bumpers is to separate what they call near field from far field signal interference. So let's say a tree branch fell in front of the car at the same time a deer was crossing 20 feet down the road. Right. How does the sensor differentiate <coughs> the near signal from the far signal? It's very hard to do. Um, you need some really unique expertise to be able to do that, and that's what we do really well. Yeah, and I'm sure as the, you know, your technology develops, maybe you will explore some of these other end um, markets. But yeah. in your specific market, um, who is the closest player? I mean, where, where do you see kind of the strongest competitive threats? Um, you know, we think our product is sort of uh, unique. Uh, we don't see us having direct competition head-to-head. Um, the industry has really needed the signal processing expertise. Uh, the leaders in our industry are Johnson & Johnson, General Electric, uh, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, and Abbott. And they have different machines that operate in the operating room. And um, none of them really were able to solve the signal processing challenges. So uh, we're really the, the newcomer. And we're complementary, we believe, to all those players because Think of like Dolby in uh, movie theaters, right? You know, you get this incredible sound. Um, you know, we're, we're providing clean signals, and if our clean signals can improve the outcomes of the, of the uh, procedure, everybody's gonna sell more product, right? All the, all the other equipment will be in higher demand because that 4% that choose the surgery will grow. We're not taking anybody on head to head, we're not, taking any market share from anybody. It's a new category. Right. Is, how do you price the system? Well, we did a market research study with a firm in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, called Health Research International. They've been around since 1979, and they do impeccable market research on new medical products. So we engaged that firm, and we did uh, quite an extensive survey. Uh, we uh, surveyed almost 550 uh, EP physicians, these doctors, and ask them a bunch of important questions. And, you know, universally, uh, everybody says noise is a problem in their lab. So that's not up for debate. You know, the pricing of the existing equipment in the um, operating room 
uh, varies. Uh, we think we're close, closely sort of synonymous with uh, mapping systems and what they call recording systems. These are two different technologies that provide different kind of information to the surgeon. Um, the mapping systems sell for like 300,000 per system plus software and tools. Um, the recording systems sell for about 175,000. Um, and so we feel like we're in that neighborhood between those two price points. And that's, that's the hardware sale. And then we offer a service contract on top. So it's kind of like an old school Hewlett Packard model, you know, where they sold the computer and the ink. Here we're selling the computer and a service package that uh, gives the hospital installation, uh, training, software upgrades to our proprietary operating system, and then maintenance. So they get four key offerings in a service contract, and we think we'll get about 20 to 25% of the cost of the hardware as a recurring revenue stream. Uh, that they'll pay for every year. And then we have other uh, businesses we're building on top of that. Uh, we have uh, clinical software applications, which we're kind of, we have about three years worth of software that's already been developed. Uh, we developed a lot of this with uh, our partners at the Mayo Clinic. And then um, we are working with Mayo and MIT uh, to create a data set business, you know, a machine learning uh, data business that will hopefully uh, streamline some of the procedure. Everybody's getting into the data business, so we're not unique to that, although our computer system, it gets the cleanest signals. So we think that our data sets, once built, and it'll take us a little bit of time, we're optimistic it'll offer some real nice value, but everybody who I mentioned earlier from J&J &J to Medtronic, Everybody's going to be getting into the data business if they have a system that allows them to get in, into in that business. In the near business. term, though, it's, it's the sale of the physical boxes yeah. along with the service contracts. That Correct. Are and the, the and then the clinical software applications will probably roll one of those out per year. That That is a very specific software that allows them to do something unique that's not part of our operating system. So, you know, let's say you have an Apple, uh, you know, um, MacBook Air and you bought it at the Apple store, but you were a Office you know, user, you'll pay $149 to Microsoft for the key to turn on you know, PowerPoint, Excel, and Word. So we will offer uh, software, uh, dedicated software applications one a year, and they'll pay us you know, money for that. Now, will they do it on a subscription basis? We're not completely sure, but they're gonna pay us somehow. Uh, so that's the third tier, and then the fourth tier is the data. So there's yeah. kind of a four-tier business model. One of the things you talked about in the past is your, your relationship with Mayo Clinic. Uh -huh. um, what, what is their role in the development of the product? Great question. We went to Mayo in November of 2014 uh, because when we looked in the medical uh, literature uh, for all the historical clinical data and you know, publications, we noticed that two physicians at Mayo were very well studied on signal processing. So we contacted them in the third quarter of 2014 and they agreed to evaluate our technology. Arm's length, uh, they would create a, a series of tests that they would uh, engineer and we give them a system and they would tell us, are we on the right path or not? And so we started down that road in early 2015 
And after about a year and a half, they approached us and asked us if we were interested in a partnership. And I think at the time we might have had 12 employees. So we were like surprised that they would ask us and we didn't know what they were talking about. And then about nine months later, we signed a, a 10 year collaboration agreement with them in March of 2017, which uh, is pretty dynamic uh, agreement. It allows us to innovate with them <clears throat> exclusively in this uh, arena, you know, signal processing in electrophysiology. They've been very helpful in helping evolve some of our software and some of our know-how. And for that, they get a 2% royalty on every uh, system we sell. And um, they also invested in our company. They invested a million dollars last year, and they have oh, wow. they have the right to put another 3.6 million into the company. I think at about six dollars a share. And you know, we think at some point they'll exercise that option. The other thing about Mayo is that we um, licensed four other technologies that they've been developing over the last five to 15 years. You know, different programs have been uh, some have been longer in development. And they have um, looked at us as a competent group to be a development partner with them to take some of their technology through the development process and into the commercial market, which is, you know, kind of exciting for us. It's a lot of work. And we opened an office in, at the Mayo Clinic uh, last November. So now we have an office there, you know, one of our colleagues. And uh, we're staffing it up with uh, engineers, project managers, and some business uh, folks so we can more rapidly innovate. You know, we want to be there on site. Think of like, I think of Mayo Clinic like Stanford University was back in, you know, the 70s. Mayo is the number one innovation center in medicine in the world. And, um, you know, it was a closed uh, system up until about 2014. They would not work with any outside parties. And uh, thankfully for everybody, they've opened that up. It's sort of like the opening up, up of China many years ago. Um, so we were just there at the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's incredible. And speaking of partners, um, tell us a little bit about the other investors in the mix. And uh, I, know, I know you obviously prefer longer term investors, but what, what are some of the... Um, in our company? Yeah, just curious. Yeah, we're sort of an unknown company. I mean, uh, we have a small shareholder base, roughly 5,000 shareholders of record. Um, you know, it's pretty good geographic dispersion. We're, I think we have 26 countries represented in that shareholder base because we traveled a lot uh, to find good shareholders. Um, just to give you a comparator, I think Walt Disney has 8.9 million yeah. shareholders. So we have a very... That's not surprising. Yeah, we have a very long way to go. Um, and uh, some of the other well-known companies have way more shareholders. Um, but the shareholders are uh, mostly um, insiders. So uh, between myself, our management team, and our board of directors, we own somewhere in the mid-30s uh, percent of our company. So we're the largest shareholders as a block. And then um, you have uh, sophisticated, high net worth individuals. Uh, we don't really have uh, too many hedge funds. We have no venture capital. And we have no private equity, um, which basically uh, allows us to be independent to a degree. And speaking of the long term, I mean, if you could mm -hmm. lay out, uh, you know, where you see this going in the next, you know, couple of years and then in the medium term. Yeah, I think, you know, we're right now commercially in rollout. Uh, they call it limited market release. In medicine, 
unlike the internet or you know cars or what have you, uh, you want to go slow in the beginning because you're installing could be life-saving technology and when you're doing the installations, uh, the training of the physicians, uh, the interconnectedness of your system to the uh, network in the operating room, they, there can be glitches. Uh, so you have to troubleshoot everything and it has to be done right. You can't rush that. So once you get you know the first, say, six to 12 hospitals uh, done properly, uh, then you can start moving faster. That's kind of the way it's done for the successful MedTech launches. So it, 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 it takes a little bit of time. Uh, so we're in that process now. We're in three hospitals in the United States. We're at the Mayo Clinic, uh, we're at um, University of Pennsylvania, and we're at the uh, St. David's Hospital in Austin, Texas, which is a, probably the highest volume uh, hospital for treating this disease. And, you know, we said publicly in our shareholder letter of last November that we'd like to be in about eight centers, eight to nine centers by mid-year. And, you know, our stretch goal would be to be in 20 hospitals by the end of 2020, which is uh, going to be a lot of work. Well, what's the sales cycle like for uh, it, Yeah, good question. Um, we classically uh, analyze the market in four categories. Uh, we, the first category we call the innovators, the innovation centers. So somebody like a Mayo Clinic who are innovating new technology. Most innovators want the newest technology and the sales cycle is relatively short. Uh, they, they have to have it essentially. It's like the people who will go to an Apple store you know, before an iPhone launch and camp out for they two days. Out, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's only 3% of the market. So it's a small sector. But that's, that's where we're targeting initially. And then you go to what we call the early adopters, which we think is about 27% of the market based on our study. And those are the large cities in the United States. So we call them the NFL cities, New York, LA, Chicago, Philly, Boston, et cetera. And in those markets, you tend to have an oligopoly uh, with hospitals. In New York, there's probably eight to nine centers that treat all the people that live in this city. Boston, same. Philly, same. So we're looking to go to, uh, in the um, uh, large cities, we want to go to the hospital we think will appreciate our technology the most. And, um, you know, we will support them and get them up and running. Usually what happens is nobody wants to be left out. So let's say if New York University Hospital takes our system, Mount Sinai doesn't want to be at risk of losing any patients because... NYU has the newest technology. So the great thing about MedTech is hospitals use it uh, to uh, as both a marketing tool and, and a legitimate way of competing for patients in market. Product. Do you give guidance on revenue? For, uh, That's a great question, Divya. I mean, we've been asked to give guidance and we are, um, because we're just now in the commercial market uh, since November, we're getting uh, data points and we're getting a feeling for how it's going to go. We've resisted giving guidance because until you're in the commercial market, if you give guidance and you don't know what's going on, you're just taking a guess and investors will not like you if you don't guess right. So uh, we've wanted to see at least early indications and now we have some of that information. So we will be giving guidance. I can't give you the date, but it'll, sure, be, yeah. it'll be relatively soon. And I think some people will appreciate that. But you asked me a question a few moments ago. What do I think, where do I think this is going? Um, our goal with Pure EP and this product platform 
any great medical technology company, they want to achieve what they call being uh, the gold standard, the standard of care. Um, to get there, it's a journey. Uh, sometimes it can take seven years, eight years, nine years. It's, it's about that, that long. But if you're considered the standard of care, you'll get into like 60 to 70% of the hospitals. You'll never get into all of them because some of them either won't do these procedures or they won't have the money. Um, so you'll get into 60 to 70. So that would be our goal um, uh, in the U.S. and also internationally. And then, you know, the, the unknown today, and, you know, it's anybody's guess, although I feel pretty good about it, where do signals go in medicine? How can we apply our technology in medicine uh, to other areas of the body? Or, you know, one of the things that I've been following for years is wireless medicine and uh, wearables and sensors. You know, anybody who's wearing a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, um, the data that uh, that device is collecting off your body is corrupted by noise. But the noise uh, is not the same as in the operating room. It's your voice. It's you accidentally banged your wrist on a table. It's your husband or wife yelling at you. It's your dog, it's your dog barking. And so if you're looking for that data coming off the body to be precise, you know, we think our technology may have a, a role to play in that element. And then, you know, in terms of other areas in the body where we can go, uh, we do have a subsidiary called NeuroClear, uh, which is in the early phases of uh, developing product for neurological applications. And uh, I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if this electrical information will be as, as much value as um, genomic information, but if it is, and we have, you know, uh, cornerstone technology, 10, 15, 20 years from now, this could be a really big company. And so that's why we're still here after 11 years. We all kind of believe in that. Well, Ken, listen, it was great, great having you. I think you guys are uh, working on some pretty Thank cool you. tech, and, and it seems like the end markets are um, quite large. So um, maybe, um, you know, for fun, we can end with um, just your sense of uh, what the market cap potential is for the business. I, th I think the stock traded around $100 million market yeah, cap right we, now. Yeah, we, we've been in a uh, kind of in a range, and, you know, uh, Andy, who's sitting here by my side, uh, he's just joined the company several months ago. Uh, we worked together many years ago, and Andy is going to be working on helping us build the uh, shareholder base. We really don't have much institutional investment ownership. Uh, we, we both came from the institutional investment community, so we know what institutions are looking for and what they require. So we're working hard to uh, make ourselves uh, attractive in that regard. Um, but, you know, the market cap potential, if the company can sustain itself, and not get acquired. Um, you know, companies in our neighborhood in five years trade for several billion dollars of market cap. So that would be, if it's you want to use two billion as a, as a guesstimate, you know, it's a 20 time return from where we are today. Now, will it be that? Will we make it there? Nobody knows. Uh, we think we can get there, um, but we wouldn't mind going past that. You yeah. know? And, but in terms of the catalyst, it really is just having the pavement, getting the getting sales, and sales getting and clinical data, yeah. um, and and business developments. You know, uh, we're we're collaborative in our mindset. So if we can find partnerships with some of the companies in our industry, where let's say our signal processing capabilities can be embedded in other people's products to make them better. 
kind of like the Intel Inside model, that's a that's an opportunity for us, and we're exploring that. Um, you know, that stuff takes time, but uh, at the end of the day, we have a very unique capability, and so everything from pacemakers uh, to ICDs to mapping systems, uh, there's a lot of product categories that would benefit from signal processing uh, and the noise reduction that we provide. So, um, you know, we try not to be too... Uh, too promotional about what we think our market cap can be, but you know, uh, all of us are really geared towards uh, building a much bigger company. Our management team all comes from places like J and J and Medtronic and Boston Scientific and um, Google. So you know, these are folks who've worked in much larger organizations. So we have a good group uh, looking to grow the business, and uh, you know, um, we think we represent really good value from an investor perspective. And we appreciate you guys uh, hosting this podcast. We get get the word out there. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ken, for joining us. And uh, we're looking forward to tracking the progress of the business. Thank you. Take care. All right, that's all we have for you today. As usual, please do not hesitate to reach out to SumZero if you'd like a warm introduction to Biosig's IR team, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, whether those are managers you'd like to um, endorse or topics you'd like to see us cover, we are happy to hear your suggestions. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Hope you got something out of this and enjoy the rest of your day.